Welcome to episode 52 of the Your Kids Next Read podcast, in which we talk about books and reading for kids of all ages. I'm Alison Tate, author of middle grade adventure series, The Mapmaker Chronicles, The Ataban Cipher, and my latest, The Maven and Reeve Mystery Series. And I'm here with my co-host, the excited Megan Daly, celebrity teacher librarian at Children's Books Daily, and author of Raising Readers, How to Nurture a Child's Love of Books. Megan and I, along with our good friend, author Alison Rushby, are founders of the Your Kids Next Read community on Facebook. Search for Your Kids Next Read there to join us. So what is occurring in the hive of Megan this week? It is a hive, a fairly sticky hive. Do you ever feel really stuck in your parenting? Like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> at the oh, moment, yes. oh, it's just horrific. At the moment, not horrific. I love it. But I basically <laughs> feel like I, through the week, am doing a lot of kid wrangling and standing beside netball courts. And, of course, we all want our children to play sport and we sign them up and then we're like, Oh, it also involves us. Through the week, mm. I just feel like I'm literally surviving. It's work, it's washing, it's folding, it's lunches and high-fiving the beekeeper when we make it to the kids' bedtime with only one child crying or melting down. Like that is – it's a pretty low bar. Well, you know, I understand. I feel your pain. I have spent – like with Book Boy Junior, he started with um, soccer in the under-sixes and then he played team sports summer and winter for the next, well, what is he, 15 now? So about the next 10 years. And, oh. But he decided that he was not going to play football this year. And so the builder and I have got this Saturday mornings back. <laughs> it's quite bizarre. because even. Well, it's extraordinary because he goes off to work as well. So BB, wow. BBJ now has a, uh, as a, has a job which requires him to be at work at 6am um, <laughs> and then he stands on his feet and does you know kitchen hand slash waiter slash stove stuff all day and he's out until 5 30 so he works from 6 until 5 30 so we just have these whole entire days like we get up and we're, it's just like us and the dog looking at each other going what are we going to do today oh my gosh, can you believe the breakfasts that you could have you could go for a walk you could go out to i know coffee. we've been on bike rides oh we've been to gosh. markets i know i'm only i'm, I'm only dreaming. saying this i'm only saying this to you to remind you that it does come to an end and it's weird because strangely and i also know don't that tell me you're gonna miss it well you sort of it you actually do a little mm -hmm. bit because there is a certain structure to it. There's a social aspect to it that you, you know, don't recognize there's a community aspect to it. Like you're, it takes you into your community in ways that you don't do in any other way. Like okay. when you are on the, the sidelines are a great equalizer of all parents, you know, we're all there for the one thing. Doesn't matter what you do. Doesn't matter where you come from. Doesn't matter, you know, what you might do from Monday to Friday. When we're on the <laughs> sidelines on Saturday, we are all there for one purpose only. So it's a, it is a funny thing. And it's usually a sausage sandwich or a bacon and egg roll to be had. I know. You know? I, know. I will try. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying you have to enjoy it because, you know, I, you know, but I will say what you have to do to get through it down here on the South Coast is get yourself an awesome puffer jacket because it is freezing. I bought not this so one, much in Brisbane. I bought this one at Uniqlo a couple of years ago when I went overseas and it was the best thing I ever bought because it's like it's a long line puffer and it's like it was it's like wearing a sleeping bag down to your knees and it was I, I wished that I had come across it. <laughs> 
you know, from under sixes onwards because it was genius. It was brilliant. Get yourself a good pair of boots and a good puffer <laughs> for winter sport. And a keep cup. Well, I uh, have not been standing on sidelines because, I, you know, I have, I look, I'm doing my penance. I'm having to get up at, you know, 5.30 to take him to work on a Saturday morning, mm. which is no fun. But then I come home and I go back to bed, which is quite good. Um, but I will say I've had a moment of parental pride this week, which is quite exciting for me. Um, Book Boy had a little uh, a little piece, a little piece that he wrote, published on the Wanderer magazine website this week, a little love letter to community radio. Um, and I'll put the link in the show notes. But um, yeah, so this is like, I mean, not that we're counting, but this is like his third publishing credit um, because, of course, he wrote a piece for your book. He had yes. a piece, a little opinion piece up on Mianjin last year and then this, you know, this Wanderer one. So, you know, he's kind of like putting together a little portfolio of publishing mm -hmm. credits. I don't think he necessarily, you know, has aspirations to, to be a freelance writer or whatever, but it's always a handy thing to have an extra string to your bow, right? So um, he's learning how to pitch and he's learning how to follow up and he's learning how to wait because, of course, that's the other thing that one does as a writer, one waits. Um, he's learning how to do that. So uh, all useful skills and, you know, I yeah, I was quite proud to see it. He's, he's quite a talented writer when he puts his mind to it. Um, so it's it's always fascinating to watch your kids do things that astonish you, I think, and mm. that's that was that was a great thing. So I'll put a link in the show notes. It's called "Video Hasn't Killed the Radio Star," and it's all about <laughs> he he had a community radio program with a a friend of his from school, and talks about you know why they did it and how you know how it impacted on them and on the community and um, because community radio is a brilliant brilliant thing um, if you have a kid who's interested in because you can volunteer in different ways right you don't have to be you don't have to be climbing on roofs in the SES and you don't have to be like turning sausages for the Lions Club um, but volunteering your time for something like that like the community radio it teaches you huge numbers of skills as well as you giving your time to Absolutely. you know to keep it going so yeah anyway that's it. That's my exciting moment of the week because I've just been, <laughs> I don't know what else I've been doing. Um, but what about you? What have you been? Oh, no, we did that. What have you been up to? What did you get in the mail? <laughs> I got some good mail, actually. And weirdly, I have an adult book, which I'm going to talk oh. about. But it has a link to children's books. Okay. So I'll leave that one for a second. I The first one I've got is Sherlock Bones and the Art and Science Alliance by Renee Tremel. And I'm a little late talking about this one. It's been out for a couple of weeks now. The reason I'm a bit late is that it has gone through all of the children. So my 6, 9, 11 and 14-year-old have all read this one. They are massive Renee Tremel fans. It's a graphic novel aimed at about readers from oh, 6 or 7 plus. I'll read you the blurb. Hi there, I'm Sherlock Bones, tawny frogmouth skeleton, chief sleuth and star of all museum-related investigations. Today is an exciting day because the museum has a new exhibit and a new mystery. Together with my partners, the ever-brilliant Watts and the talking bundle of fur, Grace, I'm here to track down the ghost that's destroying the museum. And this is the most clever graphic novel series I have seen in so many years. It's um, The characters are all stuffed um, taxidermy animals, although, no, Grace is alive, I think. And um, 
it they solve all of these mysteries. So it's a detective novel set in a museum. There's a lot of science and learning to be had within these books in a very subtle, non-teachery way. They're fantastic graphic novels. I love everything Renee Tremel does, and I've got an event coming up with her in September for the Story Arts Festival Ipswich, and we're going to be doing some taxidermied um, animals, which will be very exciting. Love a You're bit of what? Ta- <laughs> It's going to be what? Well, you know. Stuffing animals. Well, we're going to be making taxidermied animals. I don't say that they'll be real ones. So she sent my chickpea some years ago now a taxidermied rainbow lorikeet, which was felted, and it is proudly still on the bedroom wall in a beautiful shadow box frame um, because chickpea loves a taxidermied animal. And, (laughs) you know, so... I will give more details of that when they are public, but if you are Brisbane or Ipswich based, you might want to come along to that. I don't I, know. Yes, the, the mind boggles. <laughs> My second book is called Song of the White Ibis, and it's by Philip Wynne and Liz Anelli. It is so good, and I have read it to my preps and ones this week. Call me bin chicken, call me tip turkey, call me picnic pirate, but there is a lot more to my song than you might think. The reimagining of a national icon, and it is such a clever book about the ibis and um, the history of it and the way we kind of, you know, carry on about them being a bit of a pain, um, but it gives some of the history and it's just very clever. And the illustrations by Liz and Ellie are wonderful. They're incredibly detailed. There's a lot to unpack in them. And I love a Philip Gwynne text. They roll off the tongue. It's a beautiful read aloud. And then my third book is Bedtime Story by Chloe Hooper. And this is the one that I said is an adult book, but I have been completely and utterly obsessed with it. Um, I'll read you the blurb. When Chloe Hooper's partner is diagnosed with a rare and aggressive illness, she has to find a way to tell their two young sons. By instinct, she turns to the bookshelf. Can the news be broken as a bedtime tale? Is there the perfect book to prepare children for loss? Hooper embarks on a quest to find what practical lessons children's literature can teach about grief and resilience in real life. From the Brothers Grimm to Francis Hodgson Burnett and Tolkien and Dahl, all of whom suffered childhood bereavements, she follows the breadcrumbs of the world's favourite children's authors searching for deep wisdom in their books. It is a memoir. It is a manual. Um, It could have been a PhD, I reckon, into children's literature and the depiction of of grief in it, which is something I have often thought, I could do a PhD in that. Mm. Um, You know, obviously I talked about books to support grieving children a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, and Mm. I'll link to that. But I have been fascinated by this book. It is really a deep dive into the way children's literature depicts grief and how it could do it oh my gosh so much better which is something I've talked about endlessly now it's illustrated by Anna Walker in the um, notes from the publisher it says stunningly illustrated by the New York Times award-winning Anna Walker I find it really interesting I guess that they couldn't quite come at calling her a picture book illustrator I find it a little bit amusing Um, But that's, you know, I know it's an adult book, but I guess I would love to have seen Anna Walker celebrated for Anna Walker. Um, I Mm. know she is also a New York Times award-winning 
um, illustrator, but it's designed by Alison Colpoise, who, of course, is also the illustrator of many wonderful children's mm. books and a designer. And she's done the cover and the internal design um, along with Anna Walker. And it's absolutely stunning. I believe there's a gift edition coming out of it later in the year. It is not just for people who have experienced grief. It's all kinds of grief and the way we um, pass on messages of resilience and hope and all of that sort of stuff to our children. It is deeply fascinating. I read it in two nights and, and I've really, really enjoyed it and I've been telling everybody about it. Oh, there you go. That's a mm. that's a massive wrap. I, do think I loved should, it. I do think you should do that PhD though. Oh, look, I thought about it. I was enrolled in a PhD quite some years ago and then my dad, who is an academic, said, oh, look, not sure who's going to read it. And that was when I wrote my book instead. So I think my book's probably been read more than my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly, but a lot of PH, like in that sort of area, you mm. can also turn your PhD I into know. a into a published work in a different way. I think I'm going way. to do that instead of standing on the sidelines of netball court. <laughs> if I enrol in a PhD, I'll be like, hey, beekeeper, guess who's now doing school sport? <laughs> anyway, what have you got in book now? Oh, my God. Um, okay, I've got a couple of very interesting ones this week. So I've received a little graphic novel called Remarkably Ruby by New York Times bestselling author Terry Liebenson, L-I-B-E-N-S-O-N. Um, it's really quite lovely. I had a little read through it. It's like I, you know, like it's when it's book mail, I usually get it pretty much the day I talk about it. <laughs> um, but it's about, it, it's about poetry. It's about middle school. It's about popularity and it's about poetry. Like, I mean, really like it, you know, following on from our last discussion about, mm. you know, books for kids, I thought it was great. Um, I'll just read you the back. Uh, Pride, Popularity, Poetry, Middle School. Ruby and Mia are total opposites. Ruby, a little awkward, not a joiner, loves to write poems. Mia, type A, popular-ish, wants to be class prez. <laughs> they used to be friends, but now they have nothing in common anymore, or do they? Which, of course, is a is a big problem for lots of kids when they yeah. sort of hit those middle school, high school, junior high school kind of years. Um, and the, the people that they were besties with in grade six have suddenly become what looks to them like someone completely different. From bestselling author Terry Liebenson, this is a story about how there's more to everyone than meets the eye, which I think is a great uh, a great little message. And it's, it's a hot pink cover. Like it's, you know, there's a girl on the front with a a microphone. The graphics are, are really, you know, engaging, very sort of cartoony. Um, and it's it's sort of, it, it's an investigation of friendship and all of those things. But Ruby's got, you know, Ruby's writing her poetry. So there's little bits of that throughout it. Um, and I can see that it would just fly off the shelves of the, you know, grade four to six mm. library shelves. Mm. I can't see any reason why it wouldn't. Um, and it's out on the 1st of June. Um, and the the sort of recommended age range is eight plus. So, you know, however that works for you. And then the other one I have, and I literally received this this morning, and I had to talk about it because it's a absolutely beautiful book. It's called A Feather on a Wing by Maria Speyer, S-P-E-Y-E-R. It's out on the 31st of May. There's gold foil on the cover. It's a hardback picture book. Um, and the illustrations, it's just beautiful. You would love the end papers of this one. Mm. I don't know if you've seen it, um, but the, the uh, end papers are just this 
gorgeous sort of like overlapping of feathers. Can you, could you go, can you go wrong? Can't um, go wrong with a feather. It is a very, it is a real piece of art as far as the actual, like, I, you know, as I say, gold foil on the cover, beautiful colours. It's all sort of blues and greens and pinks and oranges. Um, it's a very, very stylish picture book. Um, and it's essentially, I'll, I'll read you the back. Close your eyes now and remember you are part of everything. When a little girl feels lonely in the dark, her sister takes her on a dreamy journey to imagine ways they can be part of something bigger, as waves in the water, as raindrops in a shower, or as feathers on a wing. Part adventure, part lullaby, this comforting story reminds us that we are not alone. And it's very minimal text, mm. but it's just sort of like, it's like a dream of a book, you know, if I can describe it like that. Absolutely. Um, absolutely beautiful. So keep an eye out for that one. It's out on the 31st of May. And I think if you're looking for a little dreamy, mindfully kind of bedtime read, I think mm. it looks like the perfect book for that. And that was our book mail for this week. A maid with a plan, a squire with a secret. Meet Maven and Reeve. Created by best-selling author A.L. Tate, the Maven and Reeve mysteries are thrilling detective stories for middle grade readers, full of adventure, mystery, and a taste of medieval history. Good Reading Magazine awarded five stars to the Firestar, the first Maven and Reeve mystery, calling it a really great book full of exhilaration and cliffhanging moments. There are now two thrilling Maven and Reeve mysteries to discover, Find out more at mavenandreeve.com. That's mavenandreeve.com. Right, Megan Daly, it is time, my friend, to investigate the bingo question of the week. Um, bingo questions are the kinds of questions that come up over and over again in the Your Kids Next Read community. Now, this is not so much an overt question that comes up, but it is one that you and I have discussed mm. Um, is something that we should tackle because it's the kind of thing that we see bits and pieces of all the time um, and we are going to bring them all together into one big bingo question. And this week we are going to talk about creating a home library. Um, and the reason I wanted to talk about this was because I had a conversation um, last week, I was talking to someone about, you know, books in homes. And we were mm. talking about the fact that, you know, when you go to display homes, like the builder and I like to do, um, just for fun on our Saturdays, when we don't have sport anymore, um, we noticed that there's not a lot of book room for books in in homes anymore, in display homes, there's not a lot of walls. There's not a lot of, you know, even in kids' bedrooms, there's enough room for a bed and a built-in wardrobe and maybe a side table. There's a lot of minimalist approach and books, of course, are something that um, that do take up space and need to be, need to be managed. Um, but the other part of the conversation I had was with someone who's who had had to go, they, their child had had to undertake a survey in a classroom as to, they were trying to figure out I don't exactly know what they were doing. I think they were trying to figure out, you know, what, what the kids were reading at home or whatever. Um, and they were asked to put up their hand if there were more than 100 books in their house. Mm -hmm. And this child put their hand up and was incredibly surprised to discover that she was one of four who mm. had put their hand up because she just thought everyone had you know, shelves and shelves of books, but in actual fact, not. Um, so we're just going to talk a little bit about creating a home library because a, a home library doesn't actually have to be hundreds and hundreds of books. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to keep every book you've ever been given or read for it to be a library. I think it's really quite important to say that because I think um, 
children's books can become incredibly overwhelming uh, if you if you are if you do have a particularly a voracious reader or if you are a reader yourself and you sort of just sort of tend to buy them as as I do um, but I think it's important that they have it that it's an opportunity in the home for kids to have wide reading opportunities yeah um, so you don't have to have lots of books but it's a good idea to have a good selection of books available on hand and so for me it's about having what they're reading right now but also having you know a few you know well-chosen classics and we've we've done an episode on classics for kids um, if you're looking for a starting point for that um, things that you might like them to pick up like the kinds of things that you might you know you think they might enjoy or you think might be useful um, I think books that you loved as a kid can be a great addition to a home library if you particularly if you like do what I did which is buy them in op shops you know yeah. Jesse Belden's and Famous Fives and all those sorts of things but I think it's really important that you understand that your kids may not love those books too and if they don't love them too ask yourself why you're holding on to them do you have to hold on to them um, I also think it's important to have uh, some just a few lovely non-fiction books and the reason that I held on to these and the reason that I collected these was as a useful addition for school assignments because it's really important to remember that kids need to get beyond the internet when they're referencing so yeah, if they are yeah. creating a if they're writing a, a thing and and teachers expect it particularly once you get to high school they expect you not to be just ripping every single fact that you've ever um, put into your into an essay or whatever from the internet it's good to have a few books on hand that might be useful as a reference, um, even if there's only 200 words on any particular subject in it. And the reason that you need to have them on hand is that, let's face it, most kids are doing this stuff at the last minute. Mm -hmm. And so it is going to be eight o'clock at night and they are going to be going, I've got to write this, blah, blah. They are looking at the internet. No, oh, no, I'm supposed to have book references as well. And there are no. <laughs> anyway, so then you can hand over. We had this great series of just a sort of Australian Geographic, you know, science yeah. things that just had bits and pieces and they were useful for for that sort of stuff. Um, I also, we also had horrible histories, horrible science, like they didn't read every single one of them, or the horrible histories they did, but with horrible science and horrible maths, they didn't necessarily read every single book from start to finish, but there were bits and pieces in there that were useful. We also had Adam Spencer's books about maths because um, they had the younger versions, which were really helpful for getting your head around concepts but big book boy once he got to about 10 absolutely loved Adam Spencer's you know book of numbers and you know where they talked about he talked about how numbers fit into our lives and um, and that sort of thing um, I'd probably go Eddie Wu now as well because yeah. I think the Adam Spencer kids ones are not easy to find anymore but there's a whole bunch of Eddie Wu out there so I'm thinking that a home library needs to have sort of a mix of things to read right now some non-fiction things to read later maybe a few things that they loved reading when they were younger, you know, hang on to those. Mm. And it's again about this encouraging kids to read widely. So also try to put a few things on the shelf that they might not necessarily pick up for themselves. Um, I am not someone who holds on to every single book my kids read. I mean, people are always surprised at how ruthless I am with book culling because um, if I was not, the, the I would need, you know, 
every single wall in my house would need to be covered with shelving and yes and the builder's not keen on that look so <laughs> <laughs> I have to actually stay on top of them and it's um I think letting go of stuff that you know maybe didn't work out or maybe they've grown out of you don't have to hold on to every single thing um and that's one of the keys to really keeping your home library in check and relevant um, and, you know, you can buy them secondhand, get them in op shops, but buy the special ones new because the special ones are ones that you probably will want to hang on to or they will want to hang on to. Absolutely, yeah. So what I, do you think? What, what well, do you, I mean, that's my parental yeah, approach well, to the home be, library. You could be a librarian. I'm loving it, Sid. <laughs> and speaking of horrible histories, um, the delightful Mrs Malta, my library technician, has been hunting down some secondhand horrible histories online this week because um, she wants them and her children want them and they're the sorts of things that they are great reference books. We have the Eddie yeah. Wu books and we have the very old Adam Spencer maths books, not very old but they're a few years old now and they're incredibly popular. I guess my thing as a teacher librarian and as a parent is kind of what you're saying. I am really ruthless. I cull and I cull again and I do that I sort of, it's a continual cull in this household to the point that occasionally Chickpea has borrowed a book from the library and then gone, Mummy, my name's in this book. Oh, no. <laughs> because I've culled and donated to the library books which have been inscribed to my children. I <laughs> tend to be a little more careful these days. But the reason I do that, and, you know, when Mrs Malta was talking about buying the horrible histories, I was like, yeah, absolutely. You can rebuy secondhand most things if you desperately need them again. But I think you need to make room for the new. And we are veering into home edit Marie Kondo kind of territory here with this episode, but it is about does it bring you joy, Alison Tate? <laughs> oh, and no. what doesn't bring me joy is, as you said, shelves just covered in books which do not get touched mm. so if you have this idea in your head that your children really need to read Trixie Belden and and they haven't read them just ditch them yeah. you know I know I'll be turned off at this point but I've ditched Anne of Green Gables I desperately wanted my children to read them they refuse they laugh at me I actually culled them not that long ago because mm. Well, you're not going to read them again. I'm not going to read them They're not going to read them. They're not going to read them. What is the point of holding on to it? Give it to someone who will read it. That's right. And what I like to do as well is I rotate books. So I'm always rotating books by season. I take out the Christmas ones after Christmas is done. I put in the Easter ones. When it's Easter, I take them out. I will, um, I'm rotating all the time and I rotate by genre. Where do well. you put them when you, when you say to the, like, I, I, mm -hmm. because, you know, we have like a little selection of Christmas books, not many, because mm -hmm. that's not really my thing, but we have a little selection of them and I pull them out um, at Christmas time and then I shove them back into the same box that all the Christmas decorations Yeah, go I do that with my Christmas ones, but I've got lots of um, non-fiction books which are packed up in boxes. I mean, look, I'm a librarian. I have a nice archiving system at home where I have them in <laughs> archival boxes which are appropriately labelled so that when we want horrible histories, I can go, let me get the horrible histories archives box out for you. Where Look, is the archives box? Is this all in the garage or something? In the top of people's cupboards. And then I forget. Look, I'm not as organised as I was going to say, and honestly. Look, ask my mother. She says, I'm all fluff and glitter and if you dig below the surface, <laughs> there's a lot of chaos. 
Um, but, you know, but there, there is a lot of chaos, but I do rotate the books because they don't get read otherwise. And, you know, I the other thing I do is I'll pull books off, say, the boys' shelves, and I'll just pop a book on the bed that I know the small bee will enjoy. I know he'll enjoy it. He says he won't. And if I leave it there long enough and he is bored long enough, he will pick it up and read it and he will love it. But then once that's been read, I will put that away up the top of the cupboard and I won't bring it down again until the smallest bee is ready to read it in a couple of years. So I cull, I mix things up, I make things look new all of that time because otherwise they just become part of the clutter. Now, I'm going They become to, decor, don't they? That's they the thing. They just become yeah. Decor, I am going to go there. Ooh. My dear friend Jess Rainbow <laughs> orders her books and Chickpea was at her house and was enamored with the Rainbow order. And has Rainbow ordered her books? So her Rainbow book. order means colour. you are doing it by colour. Okay, just not appropriate. But anyway, she has Rainbow ordered her books and she is living her best life. Um, but and she, can I, she find them? No, of course she can't. But it does not matter because it looks pretty. Okay. Anyway, but right. um, and then my eldest daughter has is completely obsessed with owning books and is very obsessed with book talk type books. And they are decor. But I have to say she arranges them nicely and is always rearranging them. And so I'm really happy to buy her the books. And she tells me she will keep them forever. I'm sure she won't. Mm. But, you know, again, I think it's about making sure that if you are holding on to a lot of books that you're moving them around a lot. And please cull and cull again. It's just not worth keeping all of these things. As Mrs Malta will tell you, you can rebuy the horrible histories. Well, it's interesting, though, too, because I – so obviously Book Boy has moved out of home um, and he was really our – you know, of the two boys, he was our big reader and he had a lot of books. So we have gone, when we moved house, we have gone from, he had a massive, like when I say massive, I'm talking about one of those industrial garage shelf, shelving units in his room that was absolutely full of books. So he mm. had, he had that. I had two, two bookshelves in the study. Um, Book Boy Junior had a massive bookshelf in his room that he hated because it didn't work with his decor. Um, and then there was another huge one that we had, you know, sort of in the dining room. So we've had to, when we mm. moved, I've had to kind of like, we've downsized, you know, the bookshelves and stuff. And then Book Boy's moved out, but he's moved to a share house and he hasn't taken his books with him as yet. We still have all his books here. Um, so what I've had to do is I have had to actually put them, it's almost like a library down there. I've got a big shelf down in the sort of family room and I have had to put them in, you know, not necessarily alphabetical order, but they're in categories because yes. if you don't do that, you cannot find them no, ever again. Yeah. So they are sitting down there at the moment and they are not doing anything. They're not going anywhere. Book Boy Junior is not looking at them. But I do think that Book Boy will go through that shelf when he finds himself a home that he's not going to have to move out of every three months and he will take what he wants yeah. from that shelf with him and then I will probably get rid of the rest at that point. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But, you know, the, the other difficult thing, and this is probably something that we need to do in a different episode, is what do you do with the books that you cull? We did mm. talk about that a little mm. bit, I think, in our well, culling episode. I'll do a tip on that one week. That's a good one. Mm. All right, we'll do mm. that. Anyway, mm. that's our tip on creating a home library. It's kind of like you don't have to keep every book you've ever given 
you know, ever been given or read for it to be a library. It's about thinking a little bit strategically about the choices that you have there. And it's about encouraging that wide reading um, as, you know, to try, because as we've talked about, it's not just about the reading, it's also about the writing. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to the quick tips and let us talk about your quick tip first because I think that's important. Mine is for the teacher librarians out there or perhaps the classroom teachers. I'm going to talk about book tastings. I haven't done one for a while, but I'm doing one this week. And book tastings are where you basically set up your library or your classroom as a cafe or a restaurant decorate your tables with tablecloths, you can add tea lights and vases of flowers, and you put on each table different genres or collections of books that you'd like to highlight. And interesting, we were just talking about the home library and and me talking about the genres that I rotate around. This is a really good way to highlight genres which perhaps aren't being borrowed as much or a particular year level would like to expose their students to. Um, And so I'm doing one this coming week with my year threes and I'm wanting to talk to them about um, reading some more fantasy and having a look at some different nonfiction books and having a look at, uh, see, I won't be doing graphic novels because graphic novels are really popular. I'm doing them more, um, the books at the moment that perhaps aren't being borrowed as much and deserve to be. So a book tasting can be quite fancy or it can be really simple. Um, it helps to set a goal for your students before selecting the books, like what do you want them to accomplish? I'm introducing them to different genres that aren't being borrowed at the moment. Not that I'm going to tell them that, Um, but you might want to introduce them to recently published books or to diverse characters or to award winners. I've done this before with Book Week, um, the shortlisted categories. I um, think that it's really important that you then teach your students how to sample a book. So my students will rotate in groups around all of the different restaurant tables. And I say to them first that we're going to look at the title, we're going to look at the front and the back cover, we're going to look at the table of contents, the graphic design, the illustrations, and then read the first two or three pages, depending on if it's a picture book, nonfiction book, or a chapter book. My students are quite used to that because when I read them a book aloud, I always do a whole book talk. I talk about all of the different parts of the book. So my students are quite used to that, but I think it's really important to show them how to sample a book. Otherwise, they get to the table and they're just like, mm, looks boring. So you have to actually get them to properly sample it. It's like tasting new food. You have to try it properly and, and be open to trying it properly, i.e. broccoli. Um <laughs> I was going to say, is it that whole thing where you've got to give it to them three times and wait for them to spit it out? Look, I'm basically giving you a lesson on introducing children to new foods um, (laughs) and new books. But it's really a great – I find this a fantastic way. The kids love it. I give them a little menu. They can write down on the menu things that they might like to borrow um, this week or next week. I'm also this time going to give them um, sticky notes and they can put their name on a book if they would like to reserve it because they get really excited about reserves and then we will, Mrs Malta, the wonderful Mrs Malta, will work through the reserves list. So I find a book tasting a fantastic way to introduce children to new books. That is my quick tip. I don't think I've ever actually heard of a book tasting. I'm a bit jealous I didn't get to go to a book tasting as a child. I missed out. So much fun. So much fun. 
much fun. <laughs> All right, my quick tip this week is actually about uh, creating characters for kids. So it's about, it's a writing tip. Um, I did a virtual school visit during the week and I got to talking about characters. Um, kids often get hung up on who to write about and how to create a person from scratch. And you know, like when you put it like that, it's a little bit overwhelming. Um, so I always explain to them that my characters are always a little bit like someone I know. Um, they're a little bit like me. Every character you ever write is going to have some aspect of you in them. Um, Quinn's, you know, in the Mapmaker Chronicles, his um, strong desire not to get on a boat to sail around the world mm -hmm. to actually make a map. There's a lot of me in that. Um, and then they are also, once you sort of start to write them, they take off and they become a, you know, a portion that is just all them. Um, and the most important thing to remember is that you have to let the character drive the story. So when it comes to making a decision, that decision has to come back to who the character is and what that character would do in any given situation. So it's not what you would do, mm -hmm. the writer. And if you decide your character is shy, they have to stay shy unless there's mm. a really, really good reason for them to change. They can't suddenly become the life of the party and start breakdancing in a circle just because you need them to do that to make the story work. Um, and they, you have to remember who they are all the time and write the story as they would live it, not as you would live it. Um, so I think if you can kind of keep all of those things in mind when you're writing your stories and creating your characters, um, it's, it's almost like when I was writing the Maven and Reeve mystery novels, I, I had this image of Reeve on the steps of Renart Castle and I knew that it was his first day and I knew a little bit about who he was because there's a certain element of Book Boy Junior in Reeve, that sort of, um, you know, outgoing, sociable ability to read a room, ability to smile and light up a room, that all comes from, from Book Boy Junior. Like I know I talk about him like he's a, you know, a Kelpie, but he's actually quite a charming <laughs> kid. <laughs> In his own in his own way, um, so that sort of aspect is 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 him, and so I kind of had him on the front steps of this of this castle, and I knew that he desperately wanted to be a knight, and he knocked on the front door, and then I followed him into that castle, and that's literally what I did. I followed him through that story um, because he was my entry point into the story, and he it, it was all about what he was going to do to actually you know get that dream that that he was trying to acquire. So. So if you can remember that, that you are putting your character into a story and you are following them through it, they are driving all the way and you are simply, you know, in the back seat and you are not a backseat driver. You are not telling them what to do. You are not making them do what you want them to do. You are allowing them to make the decisions that they would make as the character. And if you can see it like that, it does actually make writing a story a lot easier mm. because it comes back to them all the time. Hmm. Great one. That's my tip for the week, creating <laughs> characters. All right, let's, uh, we're wrapping up, babe. We've got to the end of our podcast. And what are you up to this week? Well, I'm actually really looking forward to the book I was talking about, Bedtime Story. Chloe Hooper, the author, is going to be in Brisbane next week and I am going to see her. And the following night I am going to the Narelle Oliver Memorial Lecture. This ah. is, if the beekeeper's listening, guess what? I'm going out two nights in a row. haven't <laughs> told you that yet. Um, so... <laughs> just thought of that. The Narelle Oliver Lecture was established in 2015 to raise the profile and value of children's literature um, and obviously to remember the beautiful, wonderful Narelle Oliver. This year's Narelle Oliver Lecture is presented by 
the amazing Dr. Robin Sheehan Bright, Ooh. and she. The title of her talk is A is for Activism: Social Issues in Contemporary Children's Literature, and it will be fantastic. So, if you would like to come along to that, it will be on the night after this podcast drops, and I will put the link in the show notes. Fantastic. Well, I'm also like working towards events. I'm actually prepping for two sessions at the South Coast Writers' Festival on the 3rd of June. I'm running a two-hour seminar called So You Want to Be a Writer, looking at fiction and non-fiction and the reality of making a writing career work. And I'm also teaching a one-hour workshop for kids on writing fantasy. Um, you'll find all the details at southcoastwriters.org forward slash program sessions. Just have a look at the South Coast Writers website. Um, or I think I'm actually probably by the time this comes out, I will have written a blog post about this at alisontate.com. I'm a bit behind with my scheduling. Um, but yeah, so that, you know, if you're in Wollongong or on the South Coast in the Illawarra and you're not doing anything on the 3rd of June, come along. Let's say hello. Sounds great. All right, that's us. We've wrap, we're wrapping up for another week. I don't feel like our waffle has been too waffly at oh, all this week. Not at all. A little bit of waffle. You know, I think there's been some maple syrup or maybe some honey <laughs> on it. Um, where can people get in touch with you if they want to, you know, reach out and find out more about your various things that are coming up? <laughs> I am at childrensbooksdaily.com. I'm at Facebook and Instagram at, at childrensbooksdaily. And I am on Twitter at Daily Reads. And you'll find me at alisontate.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram at alisontatewriter. And I'm on Twitter at, at Al Tate. And we will see you next time. See ya.